Hey everybody, welcome to Thumbnail, a visual arts podcast. I'm Joe Roshert, illustrator, animator, and adjunct professor. And I'm Louis Rosignol, visual artist. Yeah, today we're going to be talking about a, a topic that is very important to visual art, which is composition. And what we've done is we found a couple of great articles with some great advice on you know different ways you can make your composition more dynamic and more interesting. And we're going to kind of go through the points and discuss them and how we use them. Maybe there'll be some that we don't use as much, but I think it's good to, to really dive into this so you know you can get some, some good ideas of, of how you can improve your composition. Yeah, and I know this is a very visual type of a concept, but I think there's some things that we can talk through. That could help. Yeah, for sure. And, and we'll, we'll try to be as, you know, we'll try to describe things the best we can in an audio way. And we'll put the links to the articles in the show notes. So if you are the type of person that wants to, to look at some pictures as we're talking, you're welcome to do that too. Before we start, though, I thought we could talk about, uh, we, we like to start sometimes with, you know, things that are in, in the news as far as the, in the art world. And this week, what, what I found is I was scrolling through like the art news on my, my flipboard, on my iPad, and I came across multiple articles that were headlined like, you know, 12 exhibits worth leaving your house for, or, <laughs> or 20 exhibits worth going to the museum to see, <laughs> right? And so it made me think like, oh, people don't like to leave their house. Yeah, no, <laughs> right? definitely not. <laughs> Which is true. I mean, I don't, I, it, it would take a lot for me, like I used to go see live music all the time and now right. it would have to be like a band that i really really loved to get me out of the house right <laughs> does that mean you're getting old i think so <laughs> but it also means that we're the reason i wanted to talk about it is because i think it means we're consuming things differently nowadays yeah i think so so people are way more likely to see art on their iphones and their ipads because people are consuming art in that way way probably 90 five or more percent of the art that's consumed is done digitally. Right. And so does that affect the way that you as an artist work? Like, are you trying to make art that will look good on a screen? Is that something that you think about? I do think about that. I do think about mm -hmm. that a lot. And I think about ease. I, I think about like, if I were to paint something traditionally, I would then have to make it digital somehow. And so right. then I am losing something every time I'm trying to transfer that original piece into something else. And then having to think about those steps, having to have the right setup, the right equipment to take photography of that painting or to hire out uh, a photographer to take a pic picture of that painting that of quality. It's kind of a pain. So I would rather just do the final digitally so I could submit the final as it's supposed to be seen. Right. Right. It uh, There are downfalls to that, right? Like, I don't have that quote-unquote original piece anymore. Yeah, that's that can be tricky, depending on, on what, what you're doing the piece for. Right. But I have the ability to make changes endlessly, corrections endlessly. That's like a double-edged sword, though, because I know, for instance, I used to, you know, scan. I scan my drawings into the into the computer. Yeah. And then you're tempted like, well, now that it's scanned in, I could actually use Photoshop and enhance it, make it look even better. Right. And I used to do that, you know, more 
But what happens is like I will make a drawing look a little bit better or add, add, add color. But then if I post it and then someone wants to buy it, um, I have to tell them like, oh, I added color digitally just so you know. So the original is not doesn't quite look like what you're seeing on the screen. So then I stopped doing that because of that. Mm. So with digital work, it's not such a big deal because you don't even have an original anyway to sell. Right. But if you're posting work that's traditional, if you edit things, then you're and someone ends up wanting to buy it, you're kind of in a spot where you have to tell them like, oh, well, that's not what the original actually looks like. Yeah, yeah, so it is a little tricky. And I guess this comes, this loops back around to the the museum thing, right? Like, is it a positive or a negative that we're seeing more art, but not the originals of the art? Is that kind of where we're going to go? Yeah, I don't, I don't know. It's also weird when you only ever see art in on a screen, like for instance, the Mona Lisa, it's one of the things that people always say that after they've seen it in person is I didn't realize how small it was. Right. Like, because you, you don't have any scale when you see it on a screen, you don't know how big it is unless it's next to something that you, you know, if it's, if someone's holding it, you can see scale. Totally. Just a photograph of a piece. It could be any size really. Or how physically deep the painting is. You know, it's like some of Norman Rockwell's paintings are crazy deep where, right. like a ledge, a, a painted ledge is actually a 3D ledge on the painting, yeah. just with built-up paint. But that's true. And sometimes piece, some pieces are are humongous, and when you see them in person, you really can appreciate how how incredible the piece is because of its just the size of it. But if right. you saw it on a screen, it would just be like you. It probably wouldn't impress you. Right. And so going out and seeing art, I think, is important. But uh, anyway, the, the reason I wanted to talk about it is just because of how how much the the way that we see art has changed and it definitely affects what, what we do as artists. So we have to be aware of that. Yeah. That was a interesting topic anyway. But let's let's go right into composition. Sure. And I know when I first because we kind of take turns picking topics and when I texted you maybe do composition. You had the same reaction I did where it's like, oh, I don't know if we can fill that much time. Yeah, and I was yeah concerned that, like, how are we going to show a good composition Yeah, through audio? Yeah, it's, it's more visual. So we'll, we'll, we'll do our best. Mm-hmm. We're going to go through these points. Um, I already mentioned we'll put the links in the, to the articles in the show notes. Um, but we'll, we'll just go through them one by one and, and do our best to convey what they're, what they're talking about and why they're so important. Yeah. The first one, on the very first article, the first point was having an obvious focal point mm-hmm. for a good composition. And I think this one was first for a reason, because it's probably the, one of the most important ones, mm-hmm. right? If you don't have a focal point, because your eye, it wants to kind of know what they're supposed to be seeing when they look at a large image, you know, well, what's the point of this image? Where am I supposed to be? Right. Focused. So, so I I interpret this more as visual hierarchy, and right. so it, you could have multiple points, but you also have to understand the order of which those points happen visually, if that makes sense. So, what's the first thing you see? What's the second thing you see? Third, fourth, so on, and you can control that. So, as long right. as you're aware that those are points in the piece that you can control. That's that's step one. You need to have awareness of that. You need to focus on that. <laughs> you got to no, be aware true. of that. And and there's there's pretty easy ways to 
to make focal points and to to accentuate things the main ways i think of are with scale so that you know if you make something really big on the page then that's automatically going to draw people's eyes Mm -hmm. Um, and then you can use bright colors as a great way to to draw the eye in if if everything's kind of muted but then there's one big giant splash of red bright red your eye's going to go straight to that yeah if it's all black and white maybe the piece with the highest contrast or the point with the highest contrast is to a focal point sometimes a tangential line or tangential point will automatically make the eyes focus on that and what that is is when a point intersects just at the tip with another point so it could be two lines it could be an elbow touching the edge of the frame those are high tension focal points right yeah anything like that anything that overlaps kind of draws the eye in so there's definitely ways to to easily create a focal point and like you said you can have more than one i mean a simple way to describe it if you have a a white piece of paper and you have a giant black dot and then maybe like a, a mid-sized black dot and then a tiny black dot it's all there you have three different focal points the huge one is obviously the main one mm-hmm. and in and as you go smaller you know those are the next the next um ones and so that's just by doing it by size until you add some other element right so if we were to right. add color and and we colored the smallest dot red bright red that might get the focal point. You're right. Yep. Yes, so, for sure. So, so rules. There aren't really uh, set rules uh, as far as written rules for this, but right. you, it's you have to be true to what you see first. So, if you closed your eyes, you you looked at your piece with new eyes. If you if you brought in some friends and family to be like, what's the f- very first thing you see in this piece? And if they're honest about that, that that's part of the training on how you can tell what the focus is, what the real hierarchy is. Absolutely. And and it should be that if you have a good focal point, everyone should be able to tell what it is. You know, if you ask 10 different people, they shouldn't have 10 different answers that should be all right. saying like, oh, you know, if you if you picture like a, a, a painting with a the ocean and then there's a boat, like everyone's going to say the boat is the focal point, right? Because right. it's the only ship amongst this big canvas of just blue one other easy way of thinking it is like portrait mode on your iphone or uh so like there's one point that's clear and focused and the rest is out of focus yeah that's it with photography it's easier to do in a way because you can set the depth so that things are just totally out of focus except the one thing that you want to be in focus right and so you're kind of doing the same thing but you, you really with illustration, you generally don't have blurry things, so you have to do it in different ways. But you're right, that's that's a great way to think of it. So so the next one, let's move right along, because there's quite a few of these, is figure ground. And and having a figure ground, so which, which will help create depth in your piece. Yep. And even if you don't have a necessary, like a landscape, like a ba- actual background, if you just draw like a human, or, or, or a character, and you don't put anything else on the paper, the rest of the paper around that person becomes the the ground mm-hmm. behind the figure. You don't necessarily have to draw things, but but what happens is when you do p- draw something in, in on your page, a, sh- a shape of a human, that shape will make other shapes in the background. 
right? The, the white becomes a shape if you put a black silhouette, right? Right. And it doesn't even, it doesn't have to, figure ground relationships doesn't always mean a human figure in a back, uh, on a landscape, right? So it's, it's really just talking about, if we were thinking of a square shape, let's say a square on a white background, the square would be the figure on the ground of the white plane, right? And so what are the, what are the shapes that are forming in the black space and in the white space? Exactly. And so just to be aware of what is the figure, what is the ground, and what, what shapes are they forming? So rather than just looking at the, the figure and what shapes the figure is forming, what, what shapes is in the background because of what the figure looks like, that's going to affect, right? So if you, if you picture a person with their hand on their hip and their arm is kind of going out a little and then coming back in so that their hand is on their hip, there, there's a triangle created. And the whole, there's a triangle created. And so that's a, you've created shape with the figure that's, that's shown in the ground. So, I mean, this, that's just one example. But the main point is just to be aware of the different shapes you're creating in the background with, with what you're putting in the foreground. Right, because you could use those shapes to draw the eye around the page. Yeah. And that's what composition really is at its, at its heart. Exactly. And so that's kind of relates to the focal point in a way. Um, all these things relate. I mean, there's no getting around it. You're talking about a composition. So how things are composed is, are going to be related. The next one was think horizontally and vertically. Hmm. And so I didn't know exactly what they meant. So I read it. It made sense. So, it, you know, if you think about like a, um, a composition with sir, like say your characters are short and fat. So they're kind of more circular. Mm -hmm. they're not very vertical or horizontal. They're just kind of a circle. But if you have a very tall, skinny person, now that's very vertical, right? Or if you have a car, like a, a sports car, that's more horizontal. And so the more things that are definitely horizontal and definitely vertical, the more interesting that, that composition becomes. Uh, our eyes like things like that more than they like just blob shapes if you, if you know what i'm saying hmm. yeah I uh, i'm not sure if i'm totally buying this one but that's actually funny because i was thinking about because i do a lot of vertical stuff in my work right? i know but... i was thinking about this with your especially with that um the moose ahoy yeah the characters yeah. you did yeah moose gale and ahoy yeah yeah because the moose character in particular is very skinny and vertical but the antlers coming out are really horizontal. so he's yeah. almost looks like a capital T, right? Right. Yeah. Yeah. And, <laughs> and so that's a great that's a great way to create a figure that is got some really dynamic verticals and horizontals in one figure, and and it, it's much more interesting than if he was like a short, fat moose with tiny little antlers, and he just kind of looked the silhouette of him just kind of looked like a a circle basically. True, but I think what makes it interesting is. Most most of the time, the, those antlers and and his the vertical of his body is isn't ever vertical or horizontal, right? Right. So it's like the the angle is always going to be more dynamic than a straight line or a horizontal line. Right. Right. No, I know what you mean. Okay. Having it on an angle, diagonals, and so another thing too is like tension is always a really great way to to make your composition more interesting. So you don't all just want to have all 
vertical and horizontal lines. I mean, putting if you threw a lot of vertical and horizontal lines in a piece, but then one giant circular shaped thing, like now there's tension because there's this one thing that doesn't really fit. And so it, it's not just a matter of using one of these rules. You really have to try to think about mul- multiple rules when you're working. In- right, because that, that example right there brings us back to the focal point idea and that sometimes hierarchy what rises to the top in hierarchy is sometimes the thing that's different the thing that doesn't match the others you know exactly so you know to to think that you're only going to use like just lines and no like um i don't know i'm i don't know even know what i'm saying but the point is the the horizontal and vertical rule that that they were talking about is just you know be aware that you want to have a, a mixture of different shapes and lines and when you went to mecca did you have to take the the 2d art class where you had to cut all those squares and circles and and rectangles out and then paste them onto like a square to make like a two-dimensional design yeah that class taught me so much about composition because you're just using white and black and you're just using circles and different types of rectangles yeah and different sizes we just had to make interesting compositions there was no context it's not like you were making people and and animals that you were just literally using shapes to to do it and if you have trouble with composition that's a great way to learn like to figure things out it's just by cutting out some shapes and trying to arrange them on a page in a way that's pleasing to the eye yeah starting simple as simple as one square on a square background where where do you put that tiny square to fully activate the entire area yeah of that it's composition. True. And there's artists that have literally made a career out of making squares. Yeah. And and placing them, you know. And so it sounds like simple, oh, what making a square and then just putting it on a piece of paper, but you try to activate the entire sheet with that square and see it's not as simple as it sounds. Yeah. And by activating, I I like to give this analogy when we're talking about composition in the classroom and it might be an easier analogy for for this format too where when you're looking at a piece whether it be your piece or or some other piece imagine your eyes are lasers like superman lasers and if if your eyes can fully destroy that canvas that piece every square inch of it just by naturally looking how your how your eye travels across the whole piece that's a sign of a good composition. Right. Some, sometimes a composition is weighted on, into like one corner or one area, and your and your eye focal area, your your focus is just on one one part of the the canvas, and you're not really getting your eyes up around to the other corners. Yep. That sometimes is not a good composition based on the direction or point of the piece. But yeah, it's just it's one it's one way to think of it when we're thinking. Is the space activated? Exactly. How how much is your eye traveling around, or does it seem to be stuck? Mm-hmm. It's a great way to to think about it. The next one after the horizontal and vertical one was actually talking about di- diagonals mm-hmm. and how much energy they create versus just horizontal and vertical. For some reason, when you start putting in line work and and not even just lines, but shapes that that kind of flow diagonally rather yeah. than just vertically and horizontally automatically your your image becomes more dynamic and complex and interesting yeah i think 
think about it, I think a lot of it has to do with gravity, actually, and how how we interact with gravity. And so if we were to look at a shelf, a bookshelf on the wall, we're looking at one book on a flat bookshelf. That book's not going anywhere. It's very static, mm-hmm. literally. And then if we if we were to make this bookshelf tilted and diagonal, what happens to the book? It's now dynamically moving. It's the book is physically moving down this this shelf because it's like a slide now. And so this is this is how we're also perceiving diagonals and horizontals on the canvas on the art piece. It's a great illustration to to make point. One thing to add to that is kind of like uh, again with gravity, think of think of a seesaw. Like if if there's a lot of weight on one end of a seesaw, the seesaw is going to go to that end, right? It's going to yeah, be stuck on that end. And so if there's a lot of different stuff happening on just one side of the page, it's visually heavy on that side. And so we kind of get stuck on that side. So you have to think of ways to balance those scales. Yeah. And there's all different ways. That's a, the book thing I love though, because like you're saying, a book on a shelf is standing straight up. And so we know it's just, it's not moving. Mm-hmm. But if you also set a book on the table and lay it down, now it's horizontal, but we know it's not moving. Right. But when you see a book that's at an angle, it looks like it's falling. So it, it automatically looks like it's in motion, right? Right. Or, or like the leaning tower of, of Pisa, like people right. always taking photos of themselves, like pretending to be holding it up or whatever. Right. Because it's not, it's not technically falling, but it looks like it because it's at an angle. Right. And what are some of the more dynamic architectural buildings that are out there? They're not the ones that are just a rectangle, you know, just the rectangle skyscraper aren't, aren't typically dynamic. But as soon as they're throwing in all these angles or curves, you start to you see a lot more motion in the architecture. No, exactly. So diagonals are huge for, for composition and for ener- energy in particular. Mm-hmm. Like if you're looking for motion and energy, diagonals will help do that. The next one was different points of view, different perspectives. Mm. This one is really more aimed at like, how can you make your your images more dramatic and more interesting because you know, you're looking at something from an angle that maybe you don't normally look at it from. Right, like worm's eye view, bird's eye view. Right. From inside a, a tube, anything that's, yeah, anything that's not typical to what your normal eye, sight of view is, yeah, it, it sparks interest in the piece. And it doesn't even have to be like from a different angle. It can be just be from like further away or closer up. You're, you mm-hmm. know, all of a sudden the image, you're, you know, all you can see is the eyes and the nose. Like, okay, you're really close to this person. I always think of, did you go, you were in the Alice in Wonderland piece, the show that went us at the library a few yes. years ago. Yeah. Scott Nash did a piece of Alice and she was tiny. She, yeah. And the whole sheet, the whole poster is like white. There's nothing on it except Alice. And she's like really small in the middle. And so there's tons of blank space on the page. And I just love that piece because it's so simple and minimalistic, but it, the way he placed her was just activated the whole sheet and the the perspective. Obviously, you're you're very far away from this person because they're so small, right? Um, and so that that's a great example of using a point of view or perspective that isn't really like you're not coming from a weird angle. You're just far away, you know? Right? Yeah, that's that's a great piece. So the next one, rule of thirds. This is like 
one that you've probably heard of a lot. Everyone hears this, yeah. Photography, yeah. And well, we'll just go over it briefly because you probably are familiar. Yeah. But it's basically just you divide the paper into thirds, horizontally and vertically. Mm -hmm. And then you want to try to put the focal points on the lines, especially where the lines intersect. Those are like the points that are the most interesting places. Or like in in a landscape, the horizon line being on one of the thirds. Right. You don't want it in this direct middle of the page. Right. Because that brings us back to that strong horizontal that's doing nothing as far as dynamic composition. Yeah. So think about this. Think about a landscape where it's just like a street and one telephone pole. And you put the, if you put the street, the horizon line of the street right in the middle of the page, and then you put the telephone pole coming up from that right in the middle of the page. Like that is, it's not going to be visually very interesting, but if you drop the horizon line to the lower third and then you put the pole, you know, move it over to one of the thirds, all of a sudden that image is much more interesting. Mm -hmm. Right. I'd like to stress too, like these aren't hard and fast rules. You can break these and sometimes breaking the rules is what provides the hierarchy you need. And so just, just keep that in mind too. These aren't like, well, that was actually one of the rules that I'll get to at the very end, which is one of the last things that they'd say is break these rules, but, (laughs) but you have to know the rules first and know what you're doing. Like you, you really can't break the rules until you learn them. Right. You got to do it intentionally. Right. And people, and you can tell when someone knows the rules, but they're breaking them because, you know, there's, yeah. When, once you start learning more about composition, you can tell who's who knows about composition and who doesn't. Even if they're breaking rules, you can still tell. Mm-hmm. So yeah, you're, you're right. And if you are struggling with composition, don't try to work on all of these at the same time. Like It's going to be overwhelming, and you're going to be thinking overthinking things. Maybe pick two that you want to try to work on for a while, you know, and, and build from there. Would you agree with that? That's a good idea. Yeah, because it, it took a long time for me to understand what good composition meant, what, uh, to, train, to train myself to even recognize what my eyes were doing Yeah, and being honest with myself about that. It takes a while. Like a good way to start is just to take a few or one shape, figure out how you can put it on the page, then move into a few shapes and then some lines and then add color. So you can just take things slowly until you're really comfortable with composition in that way. And then you can move on and start figuring out how you can work it into your art. The next one after rule of thirds is an odd number Mm. of things is more dynamic than an even number. So if you have a piece, if you, if you're drawing like people, I mean, if you have three people on the page, it's way more dynamic than having two or four, Mm. but obviously you can break the, this rule. This rule is definitely one that can be broken. If, if you place four people on the page, in a very interesting way, then that's going to be more interesting than, than three that are just lined up next to each other. So Right. It probably comes back to it, it's human nature to make patterns out of what we see. And so as when we're seeing three figures on a page, whatever those may be, could be shapes, whatever, uh, we're identifying them as points. Yeah. And then we're seeing the triangle that the points make. Yep. And we know that like a triangle is a more dynamic shape than a square because of this horizontal vertical rule. Yeah, so that's a great point. That's why odds tend to make more dynamic shapes in, in your page. So 
that role is something like that I actually don't focus on that much. It's not something I ever really think about when I'm drawing, hmm. but I wanted to just include it because it was in the in the article. Yeah. Is that something you think? I mean, obviously, like... I don't think about it um, a lot. I do think about relationships a lot. So I know one thing typically has to relate to another thing in some way to start to form a narrative. Right. So yeah, one is an odd number. It's, it's, it's surprisingly difficult to make dynamic. As soon as it's that one thing is relating to other things, whether it be props or, or some outside force, you start to, you start to build a narrative. So let's see the next one, avoid tangents. We're not talking about like going off on a tangent. We're talking about something that, so a tangent, let's see, how do I, can I say what a tangent is? So if you put, if you took two circles and you place them next to each other so that they were just touching each other, that's a tangent. Like that it's awkward. It draws your eye, but in a bad way, like your eye wants to see either space in between them or it wants to see them overlapping a little bit when it sees Mm -hmm. them just barely touching it. It's almost like, I don't know what it, why it makes people like uncomfortable or just people don't like it. Yeah, it's it's just it draws the eye. Yeah, it's like two arrowheads just hitting each other at the at one point. Right. And and it's going to draw the eye probably more than the focal point that you're trying, you know, you're trying to create a focal point and now if you have a tangent somewhere on the page, that's going to draw the eye and take away from what your focal point is. And it could be anything to anything. And it's just the tangents are would you say they're uncommon in real life? Is that why we don't why we're so attracted to tangents? I don't know why we're so attracted to tangents actually. But um, yeah, you're probably right because most of the time when you see things, they're either like ki- one's kind of in front of the other, so there's a little bit of an overlap, mm. or there's space in between them. You don't see things that are that have a tangent. You're right. I think that's probably why we don't like them visually. And so tangents also relate to the edge of the paper, not just two objects, but think of the edge of the paper as an an object and if you have like a person that's right next to the edge and and their arm is just barely touching it it looks weird like you either want to have their arm like going totally off the page or enough space from the edge so that it's not touching i've seen really great artists break this rule in particular and it works fine because they you can tell they did it on purpose Mm -hmm. and and so like you said before you know you can break these rules but this this is something that if you accidentally draw something that has a tangent, you may want to try to fix it. Because you could be diverting attention to the wrong spot. And so that happens too. Sometimes you'll have an accidental tangent that you have to, to work on. And that's why thumbnails are so important when you're working out composition. Yeah. So thumbnails are most important, I think. Yeah, let's talk about thumbnails. Because when you're doing a, a drawing, if you start with a thumbnail, you're starting with just the, basically the shapes that you're going to be you're drawing. And you can see... And to clarify, let's talk what a thumbnail is, right? A, th- a thumbnail being just a very small, quick sketch of the composition. So you could, you could have a lot of iterations of this, of the composition before you actually put the time in. So you could, you could figure out what you need to do a lot quicker. Yeah, and you can figure out where you want things placed. And when you said small, like you're talking, most thumbnails are like an inch, an inch by an inch. You know, they're really small. Like the size of a thumbnail, even you know, like it's just really, really tiny. Yeah, and like and you and that way, and you you're not doing any detail. You're just doing the basic shapes of where things are gonna go, and and that's a great way to figure out 
which composition will be the most visually interesting because you can you're not doing any detail and you're only drawing something very small you can do 10 different thumbnails for an image before you even start and then figure out you know which point of view is the best which way to place things how you want to relate things to one another the next one actually thinking saying talking about relationships is creating relationships between things you know when you, once you put two things on a page or two subjects on a page they automatically are in relation to one another and so you, you want to be aware the the image they showed on the on the website or that will link it was like two squares one was big and the other square was smaller and blurry and so the way it was showing the, how they're related is when you see an, a square that's smaller you automatically assume that it's further away mm. right in relation to the other square because the other square is bigger so your eye just automatically puts it as further away and then when it's blurry it looks like it's also in motion versus the other square that's not blurry so it's more static and so being aware of how you can use other things on the page in your drawing to relate to the things that are are there i'm trying to think of a good example other than other than squares you know right it could just be how one character acts with another character so if it's opposites maybe maybe it's a apple interacting with an orange or yeah. a human reacting with their pet dog and so that's that's enough to start a conversation and a dialogue between the two figures and so how how do they relate i mean there's there's so many ways to put it another way is if you see a photograph of like a car that's going really fast the car is going to be clear and everything else in the background is just going to be a blur. Hmm. And so because of the way that the background and the car are interacting and one is clear, one's blurry, you can tell that the car is in motion. You can tell it's the focal point. And so how it relates to the background and, and how you use that. And, you know, you can show things in motion by doing this. You can show how things are static. You can, show things are further apart so how do they relate i think mm -hmm. that's what they were kind of getting at with that one which is that one is more common sense to me like something that maybe you don't think about as much and i think it's i think it is typically comparing opposites or yeah comparing differences versus similarities so let's see so the next one was color obviously you got all sorts of different values you have all sorts of different um even within just one color, you have tons of different values. And so you can use color to help with your focal point, to help give you great contrast. How do you feel about, because I feel like color, especially if you're still trying to figure out composition, you should really limit your color palette to just a few colors. I think most of the time you should limit your colors because it sets, it sets the mood. So then you're in control of the mood. Yeah, I, I tend to lean towards limited color palette. Yeah, I think most most artists do. Like if you see the old like traditional um tattoo flash, it's usually just like black and then three other colors like a red, a green and a yellow or something. And they're so they're such solid designs because when you only have a very limited color palette, it's easy it's easier to contrast things and and things pop out more. The more right. colors and values you use, the hard, the muddier things can get. And it it leaves it open for you to have more control of the eye where you can have that different splash of color somewhere that gets your eye there first. And then having that same color somewhere else that's then drawing your eye to the red on the other side. So if there's red, if you had a splash of red on one 
one spot. That's the first thing you saw. Maybe there's a little bit of red somewhere else, which is drawing your eye over towards that way. And so now you're controlling the eye with just that color. Yeah. And so then you could even hop to a different color. And is that other color balanced throughout the entire canvas? Mm -hmm. So they're just great, great techniques when you, when you limit yourself. And when you are limiting your, your color palette, limit, like make sure that the the colors you choose have different values because you could choose like a blue and a brown. And if they're the same value, you know, they're both kind of like a mid value color. You could put like a blue ocean and a brown boat, but it doesn't even stick out that much because it's so, the value is so, you know what I mean? Like the. Yeah. But that's also, yeah, I guess that's part of the technique too, where he, where you're controlling what the focal point is. Because you could technically make make something stand out more with two different blues if they're far enough apart, you know, a light versus a dark blue. So that's what I mean. Just pick pick colors that are are far apart in in value and in contrast. What was the next one? The sil. Thinking about the silhouette of what you're drawing, whatever the figure is, just think about the shape of of it. And is the silhouette on its own interesting? Yeah, I think that's very important. If I'm drawing someone who's having a sword fight. Mm-hmm. But I'm pointing right at the viewer with the sword. Yeah. It's like, yeah, there, there's some cool dynamic stuff happening there. But if you just were to take the silhouette... You wouldn't even see the arm. And so depending on what you're trying to do and what, what the pose is, you have to be aware what that silhouette looks like. Because you could, with a simple change of perspective or positioning and posing, you can make the figure and character look more dynamic. And specifically on this one for like character design... If you think about any iconic cartoon character, you can identify them just by their silhouette. Mm. You know, you you don't even need to see, you could see just the silhouette of Mickey Mouse and you know right away it's Mickey Mouse. Right. And so good character design definitely takes into account the silhouette, but but good composition does, does too. But, you know, you really want it to be like dynamic and unique. But we did like a game in, in when I was in school illustration in illustration majors where we did like silhouettes of cartoon characters and you know i think we had like 30 or 40 different ones and everybody knew exactly who they were right away Mm. very easy to identify iconic characters because of good character design yeah yeah so that was so the thumbnails we kind of talked about early and then the last one is breaking all the rules which we've talked about a little bit and so once you know these rules and you know how they work, by the time you master all these rules, you're going to just, it's going to come natural to you and you're not going to even be thinking about them. So breaking them will, will come natural too, probably. Yeah, I'm all for, I'm all for breaking the rules. So obviously we've both been drawing for a long time. Mm-hmm. How much do you actually think about composition when you're drawing versus just drawing and and letting it kind of flow naturally yeah it kind of becomes innate now but i think about it when i'm critiquing my own work or critiquing students and right now it's really the real focus for me is concept and narrative and story and so that's so important to be adding concept narrative and story to not just have visual interest of with a good composition but why should i care yeah. And so like you could you could be the best artist in the world, but have no concept or story, your piece is boring. Right? right. You could have the best composition and your piece would still be boring because there's no there's no story. 
Mm-hmm. I think story and narrative should be actually added to what makes a good composition. But um, I guess that's more interpretive rather than actual physical good composition. But that's something to think about, for instance, when you're thinking about like a focal point. You need to know what the what story you're telling with the image to even know what focal point's going to be, right? Totally, because you are telling a story based on your hierarchy, based on your composition. So, And so the, the subject matter definitely plays into the composition. I think a good way to um, work on composition is to find some pieces of art, or drawings, or even photographs that you think are really strong compositionally, and take them into Photoshop and like use the threshold you know, adjustment. And what it'll do is it'll, it basically will minimize that piece of art down to just black and white. And then you can just see the shapes very clearly. What shapes does this thing make? Another thing is just to take a a piece you like and really just try to figure out like, okay, what are the main shapes of this composition? You know, Mm -hmm. like blur your eyes and, or squint your eyes, I mean, and then you can really see the main shapes and then try to use that those shapes to make your own composition of totally different subject matter but using the same composition that they use see that's a kind of a fun way to to learn composition and to to you because you know that 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 already has worked for somebody else i'm not saying to copy people's work i'm just saying it's a good way to to figure out what worked for them and why it worked for them and and it's a good way to learn and again with like the laser eyes idea Put a piece of tracing paper over an image that you think is has a good composition, and try to try to be true to yourself and trace trace with a, a red marker or something where where your eye is going on that page to see how certain shapes are making your eyes move certain ways and why you know that's a good point. So it's just kind of di- dissecting it, dissecting the image and reverse engineering. Another thing to notice too is if you flip an image upside down. Most of the time, it will really mess with your mind. But I, mean, I, I don't. I think a lot of great compositions don't work upside down for some reason. Have you ever noticed that? Like, if you, I think it's the gravity thing. Yeah, it is. And so it's, it's like a good composition for me might not be a good composition for someone who grew up in the Western, in in Asia maybe because of how they read, right? So we we read from left to right, and that alone is enough for us to have composition that kind of moves that way that's something to think about too subconsciously it's it is strange though because i've drawn figures or or whatever and then i've put them into procreate and then just you know how you can just flip something horizontally or flip something vertically Mm -hmm. so i've i've like thought well what if this figure was facing in the other direction and so i flipped it along the vertical and it was i thought it looked great and then when i flip it i'm like oh this doesn't work this way for some reason yeah, but technically all the rules are still followed, but it just doesn't work. Right. It's kind of like if you were to flip your own face, you look different. You know, you flip you flip any any person's face, they not uh vertically but horizontally, right? It looks sometimes looks like a totally different person. The, but the point I'm making is technically if you flip something vertically along the vertical, that that image that you're looking at still followed all the exact same rules, right? It's still got the same, you know, relationship between the figure and the ground. It's still, you probably still have something that's following the rule of thirds. It has all the same rules followed, but for some reason it doesn't work. And so just because you follow all these rules, it doesn't mean your image is going to necessarily work. And sometimes your image will work and you didn't really follow many of these rules. So 
composition is kind of a thing that you just have to to mess around with. And it takes more than just reading an article like this. It really takes practice. It takes more than listening to a podcast like this. <laughs> yeah. Hopefully most people while they're listening are like drawing and doing other things. That's what I do when I listen to podcasts. Yeah. yeah. Because, you know, that's, that's what the whole point. It's audio. You're supposed to be able to do other things. So hopefully right. you're drawing or doing things or maybe trying out the things we're talking about. Yeah. Cool. I, I think that was a good, uh, and then we filled a whole hour talking just yeah. about composition, believe it or wow. not. Who knew? <laughs> anyway, so um, if you have any questions that you want us to answer in, in an upcoming Q&A episode, email us. Yeah, drop us a line at uh, thumbnailpodcast at gmail.com. Exactly. Yeah, we look forward to hearing from you. And until next time, have a great day, guys. Yeah, thanks, everybody. Take care.